It's Friday, March 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Numbers of confirmed COVID-19 cases continue to rise in the U.S., and more local governments are imposing stricter social distancing rules. The strongest clampdown is in the Bay Area, which has advised people to shelter in place. Despite these rules, we continue to see many out and about. Aaron Alday, health writer at the San Francisco Chronicle, joins us for how it's going a few days in, and also how hospitals are prepping for a wave of coronavirus cases. Next, even as the sports world has ground to a halt, there was some interesting football news regarding Tom Brady. We learned that he will play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this coming season. Brady will be 43 when the season starts, so the big question is how much he might have left in the tank to be starting over. Andrew Beaton, sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, many experts have signaled that the U.S. could be in for a shortage of life-saving ventilators. While we are not currently short, hospitals are trying to brace themselves for a spike in severe cases where patients need help breathing. The government is ordering more and encouraging states to also do the same. Dr. Jeanette Neshwat, Fox News medical contributor, joins us for what to know about a possible ventilator shortage. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We know that this will have a tremendous impact on our economy here in San Francisco, but throughout the country. Uh, And so what we want to at least do is everything we can now to help get uh, people through this this challenge. Joining us now is Aaron Alday, health writer at the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Thanks for having me. So the Bay Area, there's six counties that have issued a shelter-in-place order. This is only on essential businesses, but it, it really is the strictest measure in the United States so far. It began uh, Tuesday at midnight. It's uh, supposed to be in place until April 7th. So we're a few days in now. Aaron, tell us how it's going so far, and then tell us what the restrictions are exactly, just so everybody can uh, understand what's going on. So I'll tell you about the restrictions first of all. It's defined as everybody's told to stay home, stay away from others as much as they can. You're allowed to go out for what's called essential business, which at this point is fairly loosely defined and that people um, can go grocery shopping. Um, they can go out for home supplies, so toilet paper, cleaning products, you know, diapers, whatever you might need in your home, um, but also auto body shops, veterinarians, hardware stores. Lots of places kind of fit that criteria of what's considered essential. I will say for now, I think that there's room for these measures to tighten up even further if we're not seeing sort of the improvement in case counts that that folks are looking for. But for now, that's where we're at as far as the restrictions. We are a couple days into it. And, you know, it seems like people are are taking this seriously. I think we're still feeling out the, the boundaries here. People are still kind of figuring out what's appropriate and what's not. You know, there's a lot of people that are going outside right now because they're encouraged to go outside. It's not healthy to just be in all the time. But, you know, you get enough people outside in one spot and and it sort of defeats the purpose of social distancing. So I think some things like that we're kind of adjusting to and, and there may be, you know, changes with that over time. Watching some of the TV coverage and all, they showed a, a few images of people out and about jogging, walking and all that stuff. And you're right. It, there was a lot of people out there. So it's tough to get a handle on that. And, you know, it's not a full lockdown yet, like you said, but we could be getting there at some point. The U.S. has reported at least 165 deaths, over 11,000 cases across all 50 states now. And obviously that's subject to change. It's changing so fast. But, yeah, it's tough to adjust to all of that. 
What about the homeless population? Because with shelter in place, obviously some of these people don't have anywhere to go. What's the ruling on how they should be operating in the city? The word is that it, from the orders that, that they should seek shelter if at all possible, which of course is, is, you know, a lot of people really took issue with that because obviously if they could get shelter, they would be in shelter. Um, I know that there are efforts to, you know, arrange for hotels, to arrange for RVs, to arrange for places you know, temporary shelters for those folks to go, you know, where they can have some separation. Because frankly, even people who have some housing, like in single room occupancy spaces, those aren't necessarily safe either because they're sharing bathrooms. Um, you have a lot of people in a very, in very close quarters. So there's definitely a lot of work that's going into figuring that out right now. And again, finding sort of short term solutions for where people can safely shelter. But, you know, I think that that's just that's another work in progress. We've been talking a lot about testing and how as as we get a handle on this and we are able to test more people, we're going to see this wave of numbers. As I mentioned, we went over the 10,000 mark, over 11,000 mark. How are the Bay Area hospitals preparing for a possible wave of cases? Uh, obviously, not everybody gets uh, the most severe type of symptoms, but this is what we're all prepping for. How, how are the hospitals handling this? So they're definitely in full preparation mode right now. Folks I talk to, it's sort of a mixed response of what they're seeing right now. It still sort of feels like to them, like an elevated flu season. So they're definitely seeing a lot of cases, a lot of patients, but not too much at this point. But they're all anticipating definitely bracing for that to get worse. And so they're already doing things like several hospitals um, and doctor's offices have set up outdoor triage areas. So where they invite patients by, by doctor's orders to come by, stay in their cars, get sort of checked out by a nurse or a doctor, um, you know, if they're reporting respiratory symptoms and then told, you know, if they need to come into the hospital for more care or if they can go home and kind of safely isolate there. The point of that is both to keep those folks out of hospitals where they could potentially infect others if they do, in fact, have uh, COVID-19. Um, but also, you know, things like so that a nurse who has seen somebody who's sitting in their car doesn't have to change out, you know, their face mask for every single patient. They can reuse that. And, you know, that's a big thing that's happening in hospitals right now is they're already anticipating or maybe even facing short supplies of really critical uh, protective equipment. And so they're, you know, they're reusing face masks. They're limiting the circumstances when staff can use face masks. I think that's one of the big issues right now is fearing for the supply chain in the long term. Kaiser Permanente, which is a big provider here, told me a couple of days ago that they've stopped pretty much all of their preventive care, which is a huge part of, of Kaiser's kind of service that they do things like mammograms and pap smears and stuff. And they've just they're, they're knocking all that off for the time being just because they need to have all hands on deck for potential um, COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, that's the one of the hardest parts about it is just preparing for the potential cases. You know, they're not there yet. The severity is not there yet. And, and it's just tough to, you know, be ready and get all of the equipment and, and supplies that you need. Aaron Alday, health writer at the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to see Tom Brady in the Tampa Bay Buccaneer uniform, and we're going to see him wearing a helmet that has a flag, a skull, and two swords and a football on it. And we're going to be like, man, that looks super weird. But at the end of the day, Tom Brady will always be remembered as a New England Patriot. Joining us now is Andrew Beaton, sports reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. 
Thanks so much. Quiet time in the sports world, but somewhat exciting time in the football world, strangely enough. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, as everybody knows, in this time of coronavirus right now, every major sports league has suspended operations for now. Who knows if they'll be able to salvage any of the seasons, really. But right now in this football offseason, we talked about this the last time. It's exciting times because who knew what was going to happen to Tom Brady? Now we're finding out. And it sounds a little weird to say he's going to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Andrew, how did Tom Brady wind up with this team? As strange as it seems, Tampa Bay is a team that in some ways makes a lot of sense for him. You know, we've looked at his drop in production the last couple of years in New England, and there's a lot of potential explanations for it. You can say pretty logically that his age probably is a factor. But also, if you look at the team the last few years, he has not had the same offensive weapons that a quarterback would really like if he wants to thrive in an offense. Rob Gronkowski retired. He doesn't have that same dynamic receiver like he once had with Randy Moss or Wes Welker in his prime. So if you start looking at what does Tampa Bay provide, you have Mike Evans, you have Chris Godwin, you have a dynamic tight end in O.J. Howard. So if you're looking at this, you're saying, you know what, this is a team where he can possibly win, and oh, they have a top five defense. There was a lot of talk about two very specific demands that Tom Brady had for all of the teams that were looking to get him. Some people have said that it was going to be control over the roster and that he wants to be part of the uh, of making decisions of the play calling. So I guess the Tampa Bay Buccaneers decided, you know, let's go for it on that front. Well, I think all of those things are always a little bit more fluid than they sometimes come out in the first stories. But if you think about it, Tom Brady is probably as, as an experienced of a play caller as it gets in all of football, including the offensive coordinators, right? He's been running an offense for about two decades at this point. Right. So I think any team would want Tom Brady to have his say in what the offense looks like. And when you put him together with a guy like Bruce Arians, you're going to have an offense that probably does a lot of really smart things. Tom Brady knows a ton. And so, so do the people running that show over there. And when you combine that with the talent, and I think that's the big thing where we can talk about whatever the terms and, and demands were, but he's not going to a team. He's not looking for somewhere that needs a massive rebuild. He's looking at somewhere saying, you know what, this is somewhere that actually has the weapons that can really help me survive and thrive as a quarterback, especially at this age. And also, this is a division that's winnable. You know, the best team in this division, in that NFC South, is are the Drew Brees Saints. And similar to the way we've looked at Brady in recent years and wondered about his decline, we've done the same with Drew Brees. So it's not crazy to think about, all right, did he choose a division where he really sees a strong path to the playoffs? And I think you can really see that there. It's been Brady and Belichick for so long. What's the relationship going to be like with the new coach, Bruce Arians? He's someone who, you know, we've seen in interviews past has expressed an admiration for Tom Brady and said, you know, oh, back at the combine when they had a very talented but sometimes mercurial quarterback in Jameis Winston and everybody was trying to figure out what to do. He was like, well, there's a lot of options out there, including a guy like Tom Brady. And so Bruce Arians has never had a quarterback like Tom Brady in his career because the only person who's had a quarterback like Tom Brady in his career is Bill Belichick. There's only one Tom Brady, and what comes with that isn't just the passes. It's the legendary work ethic. It's helping keep the locker room in line. It's making sure everyone's always on the same page with the offense and knows the plays, knows the routes, knows the blocking schemes. So I think if you're looking at a Tom Brady, you might know that his production has slipped a bit, but you also might sense that these intangible factors could help really lift up a roster we know to be really talented. 
we, we you know we started off by talking about how there's not hasn't been much sports news, obviously because of coronavirus and all. How has the sports world been reacting to this news so far? Well, I mean, I think there's somewhat shock, right? There's never a moment where you're expecting Tom Brady to play in a different uniform. And we know this happens with so many greats, whether it's Joe Namath, Joe Montana, Brett Favre, Peyton Manning, and sometimes it goes better than others. But there's always this initial shock of, all right, at some point we're going to see Tom Brady in the Tampa Bay Buccaneer uniform, and we're going to see him wearing a helmet that has a flag, a skull, and two swords and a football on it. And we're going to be like, man, that looks super weird. And I think that's sort of the first thing. But at the end of the day, Tom Brady will always be remembered as a New England Patriot, right? There's, and when someone brings you six Super Bowls, it's, I think in my eyes, tough to have hard feelings. And sometimes these people make these decisions for personal reasons, whether it's where they want to live with their family, where they want to just spend more time. You know, did he want to continue spending time in that area or did they want to live somewhere else? So it's really hard to get upset about this when this guy's given you 20 years and, you know, whenever he retires and, you know, that day will come, he's going to be remembered as a New England Patriot. He's going to go in the New England Patriots ring of honor. So I think that's the ultimate important thing to remember. Andrew Beaton, sports reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. On the subject of ventilators, I'm pleased to report to you that we have already identified tens of thousands of ventilators, including ventilators that been, can be converted to treat coronavirus patients. Joining us now is Dr. Janet Neshwat, Fox News medical contributor and family and emergency medical doctor. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Neshwat. My pleasure. wanted to talk about ventilators in this whole Thing that we're going through with coronavirus, COVID-19, a lot of experts are pointing to a possible ventilator shortage. And really, that's the main supportive treatment for patients that get into this critical stage of COVID-19. A lot of them need to be put on these ventilators when their lungs just aren't providing the amount of oxygen that they need. Dr. Neshwat, tell us a little bit about this whole process of getting ventilators and this possible shortage that we could be seeing. We don't have a ventilator shortage right now. This is just a matter of predicting the future, the predicting our potential needs and preparing for the potential of having to have thousands and thousands of more ventilators. We currently have thousands in our current stockpile here in the United States, but it's estimated that we may be thousands short. But as it is right now, manufacturers have been working with our government's administration to help create and produce not only more ventilators, but also PPEs, were, which are just as critical for healthcare providers. PPEs meaning gowns, masks, gloves, those sorts of things. For those that aren't familiar with what a ventilator is, sometimes an infection can get into your system and can cause shock and people can stop breathing on their own. So the ventilator is just an artificial breathing tool until your body is well enough and strong enough to breathe on its own, if you will. So that's the purpose of that. Someone comes in with respiratory distress and oxygen isn't helping, steroids aren't helping, and they're not able to breathe on their own. Uh, you know, they lose consciousness sometimes, and that's when we have to put them on a ventilator. And that means where we put a tube into your body so that we can do artificial breathing for you. And the goal is it's just to be temporary until your body heals. Yeah, the administration has said that they've ordered a lot more. Obviously, we have a stockpile also, but they're encouraging states and cities and other hospitals to 
goes straight to the manufacturers, I guess, to order them as well. These things can be very costly. One of the manufacturers is called Medtronic. So a Medtronic ICU ventilator can cost between $25,000 to $50,000. And they're big, they're big items. But beyond this also, the people needed to operate these ventilators is important also. And as you mentioned, there's not necessarily a shortage now, but we're trying to get ahead of this. So predicting the future, but there are lower numbers of people that can actually operate these things as well. We have what are called RTs, respiratory technicians, who are just phenomenal in monitoring patients who are on ventilators. They work closely with ICU pulmonologists, and they are just critical in the field of pulmonology and ICUs. And yes, if you are short on healthcare providers, then it defeats the purpose of having the equipment. So that's why it's so important so that we keep our healthcare providers that we do have healthy and safe, and also not only stock up on ventilators and other supplies, but also have surge staffing to help meet the potential surge capacity that we may see here in the next few weeks. Doctor, I wanted to ask about your practice in general and patients that you've seen coming in, obviously worried that they might have coronavirus. You've done a bunch of testing as well. Tell us about that process and just patients that you've seen and most likely suspect that they have this as well, right? It's not a surprise that we're going to see an increased number of cases, especially as we have the expansion of testing capability. I have had patients come in with flu-like symptoms, COVID-like symptoms. The symptoms overlap. A lot of them are, are similar, fever, cough, shortness of breath, a sore throat, you know, runny nose, congestion. So what we do is initially we will check their vitals and do an influenza test first, which is a quick test that you swab the nose. And if that is positive, then we stop right there and we will send them home on medications and follow-up instructions. But if it's a negative test and they have fever, low oxygen levels, and they don't look well and they meet the criteria, then we will proceed to swab them for coronavirus. And while we wait for those results, we put them on 14-day quarantine so that they are not infecting other people while we're waiting for those results, which can take several days up to a week as it is right now. But soon, and I hope, we'll be able to have um, more rapid testing results is there any specific medicine that you prescribe? Let's say they test negative for the flu and we suspect they have COVID-19. Is there any medication that you're prescribing at that point? As of right now, there is no FDA-approved medications to treat COVID-19 coronavirus. There are some areas of the world where they're using, uh, for example, antivirals like called remdesivir, Kaletra, some anti-HIV medicine, and some Ebola medicines have been tried. Also, some malaria medications have been used as a last resort. But as it is right now, the only thing I'm prescribing are supportive medicines. Like, for example, if someone says, I just feel a little short of breath, I will give them a breathing nebulizer machine in the office, and I will prescribe to them an, uh, an inhaler, like an albuterol inhaler, for example. And if they're coughing, I will also you know, say, hey, use a humidifier, drink lots of fluids, stay hydrated, you can use some over-the-counter cough medicine some over-the-counter Tylenol, ibuprofen for fever, and sometimes I'll prescribe prescription strength cough medicine. So it's more symptomatic care, but of course, that's not all. We, we really have to make sure that we're giving them very strict precautions to stay home and rest. Dr. Jeanette Neshwat, Fox News medical contributor and family and emergency medical doctor, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.